So uh, what I'm going to be doing uh, for a little season is, is actually a series of talks about how to learn or learning maturity in respect to the prophetic because uh, I think it's one of the things that the modern day church isn't very good at and I also think it's down to the fact that prophets haven't done themselves any, any favours and also the church's lack of understanding of prophecy and the nature of the gift as well hasn't done us any favours overall. So the, generally the gift of prophecy in most churches, not most churches, but a lot of churches is, is looked on with a little bit of, mm, okay, it's a little bit risque. But uh, I'm just going to try and keep everything grounded in scripture here and so and just set a pattern which we can all remember, you know, simple things like, you know, if a prophet gets up and, and, and predicts something of the future, you know, we all immediately think it's going to happen in two weeks' time, don't we? Or at least within a week. But uh, as you'll learn through this course, like, for example, Samuel, yeah, you know, when he got given that prophecy when he was about 12 years of age, that Eli, which is the high priest, that all of his household would basically be removed forever, okay? We, and then it goes to the next chapter and you see that prophecy fulfilled, okay? Well, that's, that, between chapter, uh, that chapter where Samuel received the word when he was 12 and then when Eli did actually die and the, and the promise was fulfilled, it was another 40-odd years later. Okay? And so we often think, and, he, and then it says, you know, not one of Samuel's words fell to the ground. You know, God upheld those words. And so there's that lack of, lack of understanding, I think, in the church today, especially in today's culture where we've got the microwave culture. You know, stick it in the microwave, ding, it's ready in two minutes. And we kind of feel the same with the prophetic. We feel that a prophetic word has been given, therefore it must be fulfilled within the next two weeks or the next six months, etc. Otherwise it's a false prophecy. Okay? So, um, so let's uh, start our trek into learning maturity and prophecy. We're going to start with um, chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. And basically I'm going to work through the whole of Samuel uh, eventually. And actually... Because I think Samuel's a great book to learn about prophecy, especially when you look at the life of Samuel the prophet himself and the things that he got up to. You may not be aware of this, but for those that are aware of this, the Tabernacle of David, which was erected during the reign of David, it was a 40-year thing where the Tabernacle was placed on Mount Zion as like a tent. And in that tent was the Ark of the Covenant. That should never have happened. The Ark of the Covenant should have been in the Mosaic Tabernacle down the road, but it wasn't. And, everything, and then even then the designs of Solomon's temple, etc., were all according to the pattern as was given to Samuel that was then passed on to King David. Okay? So Samuel is a really important guy. So I thought we'd spend a lot of time learning about him because um, there's a lot we can learn from him, especially as New Testament Christians as well. So firstly, when it comes to um, things of the being prophetic uh, or being a prophet, I probably need to explain as well, there is a difference between being a prophet and being prophetic. There are those that are evangelistic, there are those that are pastoral, but it doesn't mean that they're evangelists or pastors. Okay? There are those that um, might have like a, a natural uh, propensity to something, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what their office is. So in Ephesians 4, it talks about there are fivefold ministries. Those fivefold ministries are given to the church to equip the church to the fullness of the maturity of the stature of Christ. Okay? In other words, they're important. And so those fivefold ministries are you have the, um, the apostle, and then you have the prophet, then you have the evangelist, then you have the pastor, and then you have the teacher. And those fivefold ministries are given to enable us to come to the fullness of maturity of stature of Christ. 
Now, so they are five what we would call offices. They are kind of like that's, that's a vocation, it's a calling. But there are a lot of Christians that can move in the gift of prophecy. But that doesn't make you a prophet. Okay, are you with me? So the Ephesians 12, sorry, 1 Corinthians 12, outpouring of the Spirit for the gifts to the, for the church to build up the church, are not necessarily the same as the Ephesians 4 ministries, which are quite different, okay? The ministries of 1 Corinthians 12, you know, where the gifts of tongues and prophecies and faith and all that kind of stuff, they are gifts of the Spirit. But in Ephesians 4, they are gifts of Christ to his church. Okay, so there is a big difference there. So, but nevertheless, whether you're moving in the prophetic or you're called to be a prophet, all of this remains the same and remains true. And so the first thing that a prophet must be is one who knows the word, knows the word and knows the word. I'm not emphasising the same thing there. I'm talking about knows the word, who is Jesus, knows the word, which is the Bible, and knows the word, which is the prophetic word that's been given. Okay, And we're going to look at an example of this. So, if you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now, I'm just going to read from verses 1 to 10 because there's probably some stuff here that you've probably never seen. Okay, And you've been Christians, some of you, for a long time, and you've probably never seen this stuff. So, let's have a look here. Now, it says, Now the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was where in those days there was no frequent vision. And at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out. The lamp of God being the the big menorah. And uh, Samuel was lying down in the sanctuary of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you call me. But Eli said, I didn't call you. Lie down. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I didn't call you, my son. Go lie down again. And Samuel, this is really important, this verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now look at this, verse 10. And the Lord came and stood, calling out as other times. Now, that means God physically appeared to him. The Lord came and stood. Now, I'm going to have to teach you a little bit of theology here, because when it says in verse 7, Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. I need to teach you something just for a minute about what's going on here. What is the word of the Lord? Now, we know from the Gospel of John, let's turn to it now. So, uh, and the opening chapter. Now, this is ancient Jewish theology, okay? This is lost on us Gentiles, okay? So if you were Jewish and you read John's Gospel, you would know exactly what John is talking about here, okay? But us Gentiles, it's like over the top of us. Okay, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, now jump down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, in ancient Jewish theology, there was this thing, that you're going to have to bear with me, I'm afraid, uh, this Hebrew concept called the Devar Hashem. Now, Hashem means the name, because they wouldn't say the sacred name of God, so they called him Hashem, the name, as in the sacred name of God, which is Jehovah. No Jew, no Jew would utter that, so that's what it was known as, Hashem. Okay, But the word for word in Hebrew is Devar. Okay? So the Devar Hashem is the word of the Lord. All right, you're with me so far. The word of the Lord, the Devar Hashem, okay? Bit of language there for you. Right, now let's move across to Genesis 14. Genesis 15, sorry. Now, again, most people, when they read this, they think this is, this is some kind of prophetic word, okay? After these things, the word of the Lord, the Devar Hashem, came to Abram in a vision, Okay, now look, this word of the Lord is not a prophetic word. As we're going to see, this word of the Lord is a physical being that is, is having a conversation with Abraham. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Now look what Abraham says. He says, O Lord God. It should be, O Lord, capitalised and capitalised God as well. O Adonai, Elo, sorry, O Yah, Yehovah, Elohim. O Lord God. So this word of the Lord, he's calling him God. What will you give me for I continue childless? Then move down to verse four. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then this word of the Lord brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, which is all capitalised in your Bible, which means that this word of the Lord is Jehovah. And it says he believed Jehovah and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am Jehovah who brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you and to possess this land. So this word of the Lord is not some prophecy. It is actually Jesus. All right. So a Jewish person. So in the early Jewish uh, tradition, they used to often often ponder and wonder about the Devar Hashem. And they came up with concepts like, well, the Devar Hashem is God, but somehow separate from God. There are scriptures where it says that the word of the Lord, the Devar Hashem, runs swiftly. The word of the Lord brings salvation. The word of the Lord brings covenant. And all of a sudden, when you start reading your Bible and it says, and the word of the Lord appeared to or the word of the Lord said, now you can begin to understand that in your Old Testament, it's not a prophetic word. It is the spirit of prophecy himself, who is Christ Jesus. All right, so I'm going to go back to Samuel chapter 3 again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord, the Devar Hashem, had not yet been revealed to him. And then in verse 10, the Lord came and stood. So now Jesus in his pre-incarnate form, because no one has seen God the Father at any time, only the Son has manifested the Father on the earth throughout all of Old Testament and New Testament uh, theology. So Jesus appears now to Samuel. Here is the revelation of the word of the Lord. 
Okay, does everyone, everyone get this? Okay, I just have to kind of like really ram it home there. So this is who appeared to him. The word of the Lord, the Devar Hashem, has appeared to Samuel and came and stood before him and then started to speak to him. Now Samuel knows the word of the Lord. So the first thing that everyone who wants to move in prophecy and anyone who wants to be in called to the office of prophet, the first thing you must know is the word of the Lord which is Jesus, who is the word in flesh. Okay? I know you're probably thinking, well, duh, it goes without saying, right? It does go without saying. But there is problems. I, I have met some prophets who spend virtually no time at all in prayer, yet they can prophesy at will. Yeah? And I'm reminded of that scripture. Uh, it's in Matthew 7, 23, where it says, but didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me, for I never knew you, you lawless ones. Okay, so you've got to be really careful that if you want to move in the things of the spirit, that you actually know the one who gave you the gifts, actually know him, have a relationship with him. Hallelujah. Is it John 17, 3? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and his son. This is eternal life, that they may know you. And the Greek word for know is the same uh, word that's used when a man and a woman know each other. It is that being, it's that intimately entwined and acquainted with God. And that is the heartfelt heartbeat of every Christian that walks this earth, is that their heart's desire and their consuming desire should be, I want to know Jesus. I want to know him. Now, we can know about him in reading the Bible, and we must read the Bible, and we must know about him. But the place of intimacy with Christ comes when we contemplate, sorry, meditate on his word and contemplate and be in his presence. And I do a lot of teaching on that, so if you're not sure what I'm talking about, have a look on YouTube. There's loads of stuff on that. So this is really important. So the first thing that the prophet must know is the word, which is Jesus himself. Also, then, the prophets must know the scriptures. So I'm going to turn now to Exodus 18. Now, if I was to talk about two of the greatest Old Testament prophets, anyone want to have a guess at who those two might be? Sorry? Okay, yeah, Isaac. There's no right or wrong answer here. Anyone else? Moses, yeah. Elijah, okay. So the two greatest Old Testament prophets are really Moses and Elijah and the Mount of Transfiguration. It was Moses and Elijah that appeared to Jesus because they are the law. Moses represents the law and obviously Elijah represents the prophets and they testify to Christ. Hence why they were there to witness Jesus in his glory. Okay, because they are pointing to and bearing witness to that which they gave witness to, which is Jesus himself. Now, So here in chapter 18, Moses, the great prophet of the Lord, gets a bit of a telling off from his father-in-law. So Moses is judging the people of Israel. This is a good one for church leaders. You know, where church leaders, the guy that tries to do everything all by himself. Anyone ever been there? Any church leaders? Try to do everything all by yourself? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this guy, Moses, was like trying to judge all the people of Israel. Bear in mind, there's probably about 1.2 million of them. And they come from him from morning till evening. And Jethro sees this and goes, Moses, you're going to wear yourself out 
and you're going to wear this people out. They, they, this is not right, that you shouldn't be doing this. And he says, what you need to do is appoint various men, godly men, uh, so appoint them over groups of tens, over groups of hundreds, and over groups of thousands. And he says, but you just deal with the difficult stuff. But then he says here in verse 19, Now obey my voice, and I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. So firstly, the role of, a, of someone in leadership, their primary goal is actually to spend time in the presence of God. Their function is not actually to be ministering to the congregation all the time. The primary function of a leader is to be in God's presence and ministering to God. And from then in that place, you come out and minister to man. If you minister to man and not enough to God, you're guilty of idolatry because you're putting man before God. You, as a leader, your job is to equip other leaders to deal with the day-to-day stuff so that you can spend more time in the presence of God. Hallelujah. I don't do anything anymore. It's great. That's not true. I do loads of stuff. I've, but I do have a lot of leaders that, that take up a lot of the slack as well, which is great. And it says in verse 20, And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. In other words, someone who wants to be a leader, or in this context is a prophet, you must know the Bible. I... I I come across this, I, mean, I know we're all on a journey and we all got to start somewhere and, uh, and we all do start somewhere, unfortunately. But the reality is, is that if you want to be a prophet, you must A, really know Jesus and B, be one that really spends a lot of time in the scriptures and really knows the scriptures. Because otherwise, because we only prophesy in part and sometimes you can prophesy some really out off being type stuff, especially doctrinally, if you don't really know the word of God. Because you may have been given something which was true, but then it's gone through your personal little theological filters and gone through this and gone through that, and then you've assumed it now means this. Amen? I've, God's given me lots of prophecies over the years that I have assumed it means such and such and found out that I was wrong. And so with that, I would actually say probably some of the prophets in the Bible, when they were prophesying things, you know, it says they longed to see these things. I'm not altogether sure they always knew what they, would, what they were prophesying. Because hey, they, how could they? How could they know? How could they have possibly known that? Um, so, so I just think sometimes that you've got to be careful when you receive a prophecy, don't start ins- inserting your own interpretation over the top of it. Because more often than not, I found when I've done that, I've been wrong and I've misunderstood something. Um, so yeah, so one of the things that prophets must, must must do is that they must really be familiar with the word of God and must love the word of God. Uh, Was it 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture, hallelujah, is useful. Uh, Sorry, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and exhortation and encouragement and all that stuff. And it's, that's all of it, not just the New Testament. It's all of it, all the nitty-gritty stuff that you don't want to read. All that nasty God-smiting stuff in the Old Testament that we don't feel comfortable with. All of it, all scripture is God-breathed and therefore all scripture is useful for encouragement and for teaching and for exhortation, glory be to God. And does it not say in 1 Corinthians 10, these things were written as examples and warnings to you 
So, and it's talking specifically about, you know, the, the travels of Israel in the wilderness. And we all know what happened in Asbury. Some pretty scary, hardcore stuff went on there. You know, the ground opened up and swallowed the sons of Korah when they rebelled against God. Those things were written as examples for you and for me. Hallelujah. So the more we're aware of this sort of stuff, the more that we know our Bible, the better we can. I think that the, the better we can prophesy more in tune, actually, with God's heart. Because we can think, like, for example, I might be getting something and I'm, it's kinda, it is going through some filters. But then I know if I've put it through a filter and it starts hitting something which theologically is inerrant, it's like it, that ball can bounce right off that and bring it back to where it should be. You have to have those, those checks and balances within you which comes through knowing the word of God. Amen? I have come across prophets who hold little reverence for the word and I think they're quite dangerous um, because they are just literally prophesying out of their spirit and, well, if they have no grounding in the things of scripture, then, you know, goodness knows what might come out. One day might genuinely be of God, another day it might be what they would like to see come to pass and another day it might be another spirit altogether. And that's why it's important that we are grounded in scripture. I'm not saying grounded in theology, I'm saying grounded in scripture. Because even our theology can warp and twist what God is actually trying to say. I've seen that before as well. So the prophet must know the word, which is Jesus. The prophet must know the scriptures. And the prophet must know, obviously, the prophetic. Now here's another thing which I find quite interesting. And this is the difference between those that move in prophecy and those that are prophets is that the prophet will become their very me- the message that they proclaim. They will end up living out that which, which they, they, they proclaim. Um, Jesus is the word in flesh. And so prophets end up becoming the prophesied spoken word and they become that word in flesh as well. Okay? I'm not saying they become Jesus, I'm not being blasphemous. I'm saying that that word which they proclaim, it's more often than not that they end up becoming and living the message which they proclaim. And you go, where's that in the Bible? Well, let's have a look at Isaiah and Jeremiah. I mean, you know, and some of the things that they did. Is it Isaiah? The poor guy had to like sleep on his side, like half naked for like so many hundreds of days on one side, then on the other, on the other side. And then, and then he, God said, all right, I want you to cook your food over dung and all this kind of stuff. He had to become the message. What about Hosea? He had to marry a prostitute so he could become the message. Yeah? So... It's not unusual for prophets to become a manifestation of the very message that God is trying to bring to the people. Amen? And don't say that's Old Testament, because I tell you what, that really annoys me. It's got nothing to do with Old Testament. God is immutable. If he did it then, in likely chances, he'll do it again and again and again, because our God changeth not. Now, I do know we're in a new covenant, and there are certain differences. Nevertheless, God is immutable. I just pray and hope that God never asks me to go lie down half naked and eat food cooked on my dung and stuff. But uh, there we go. Lord, be gracious. <laughs> and here's, here's one um, that, that's really important to me. And that is, that I, I see this a lot. You get prophets and they are not really a part of the church yet they feel they have a right to speak into the church. I get this a lot. I get people saying to me, you know, I went to some church the other day and I did this and I did that. And it's just like, it just grieves me because it's like, who are you accountable to? And I'm like, well, I'm accountable to Jesus. No, you're not. Because if you, if you were really accountable to Jesus, then you'd be submitting to a representative of his authority on the earth. 
If you can't submit to the authority of a, of a representative of Christ on the earth, you are not submitted to Christ. You are submitted to your own personal desires and your own whims. Amen? And so, you know, you get people... I mean, I've had, I've had people uh, when I was at another congregation, one particular lady, she was coming into the church and she was like trying to hold me to account on various things. And I'm like, but who are you? I mean, I don't mind people holding me to account. You know, I'm not, I'm not above the law or anything. But if that person themselves are accountable to nobody, but they feel that they have the right to prophesy into church leadership, but they have no relationship, they're not accountable to anybody, well, then that just completely... And I mean, it might even be what they say is true, but because they're doing it not under the governance of kingdom authority, therefore what they say, unfortunately, will fall on deaf ears. And more often than not, I find prophetic people, not all of them, there's a lot of really good ones out there, just don't love the church. They want to like give it a hard time and whack it with a stick. And, and they make out that somehow they are above the church. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I first started moving in the things of, of prophecy, because there was no one to train me, no one to disciple me in the things of the prophetic. When I was younger, probably in my 20s, I, unfortunately, I was that guy. I was the guy that was the, the, the rogue element, the one that spoke into things and stuff. I was that guy, and I'm not proud of it. But I, because of where I stand now, I feel I have a place of authority to speak, especially to those that are like that, because like, I've been in your shoes. I know the frustrations you feel, but actually the reason why you feel so, so frustrated in the church is because you've got a big chip on your shoulder and you need to deal with it. And until you hang up your hang-ups... You are not going to be used by God in the way that deep down you desire that you want to be. Amen? Tough talking, but it's the truth. Hallelujah. So let's, let's have a look at some scriptures here about, you know, and these, these are Old Testament ones, but it doesn't matter because it, the same principle applies. For we see the shadow and the type and the old and, the, and the, a lot of the time. So if you turn to um, Psalm 87 verse 2. And it says, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Um, I mean, I could pick up hundreds. There are absolutely loads of these in the Bible. Psalm 47, verse 4. Psalm 47, verse 4. It says, he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, and then there's loads of others, Hosea, 1 Kings, etc. There's loads where God lavishes his love on his people. He chose them and he chooses to love them. And the first thing that, that prophets need to get is that they need to have a love for God's church. Because God loves his church. And again, what I find with some people who move in prophecy, they, they're not in church, they're not under authority, and they feel they have the right to stand and shout and criticise the church. Um, but actually... You know, it doesn't work like that. And God, although God does give sharp rebukes to his church sometimes, nevertheless, one of the things that I've understood being pastoral is that you look at all the prophets and there's always a pastoral element to their message. It's never just damn, 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 you know, woe is you. There's always the pastoral element. But look, if you would just turn to me and if you would just love me and if you'd come back to your first love, then we can deal with us and your sins will be, which are at the moment are scarlet, will be washed away and made white as snow. 
You know, that is always the message of a true prophet. There must be the two-sided sword. Yes, there has to be the side that cuts, but then there has to be the edge that heals. And without that, I don't believe that if people are starting to speak into church, a true prophecy has been given because it must have the cutting edge, but it must have the healing edge at the same time. Hallelujah. And so I'll finish with this. The prophet must identify with the church. And a good example of this is in Daniel chapter 9. If we turn there now. Now in Daniel chapter 9, it's, it's a really good um, passage or, or chapter to read to understand the principles of intercession as well how Daniel interceded on behalf of the nation of Israel. Because basically what was happening at that time is that they were in, they were stranded in Babylon where God had sent them as punishment. And, and Daniel had been reading through the scrolls of Jeremiah and he could see that this uh, punishment would only last 70 years. But it, he was like, but well, we're in 70 years now and there's still nothing, nothing's changed geopolitically here. There's no way that I can see at this moment in time that we're, it even looks like we're going to get any motions to move back. And so then he interceded on behalf of the nation. And he uses language like, I'm just going to pop a few of these out. Verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. And if you look at the language throughout this prayer, it's all about us, we. He is identifying himself with the sins of his people, even though he himself generationally was too young to have committed those sins. But nevertheless, here he is, and he's identifying with the sins of the people, and he's interceding and making supplication to God on behalf of his people by identifying with his people. Okay, so the prophet must identify with the church. In any prophet that does not identify with the church and stands aloof from the church and thinks that they're above the church, in my book, is no prophet at all, or at least one that severely needs uh, some, some strict discipleship in the things of the prophetic. Yeah? And of course, who is the greatest prophet? The greatest one ever to walk the planet. Jesus. Well, how did he do it? So uh, turn with me to Matthew 3.15. And so, oh, let's take it from verse 13. It says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, uh, to John, to be baptised by him. But John would uh, try to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. Now bear in mind that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance from sin. Uh, verse 15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and then Jesus was baptized. Jesus consented to be baptized a, a baptism of repentance. Why, why would he do that? Because... Remember that he was in heaven and he condescended and lowered himself, took on human flesh and he became as one born under the Torah to redeem those under the Torah. In other words, he got right down into the thick of it, right down into the mess of it, came down to our level, came into our mess so that he could redeem us from our sins and redeem us from our mess so he could take us back to the place of glory with his father. So if there's any one prophet that really identified with his people and got down on their level and did synagogue with them, he did the feasts with them, hey, he even did the man-made Jewish feasts like Hanukkah. 
<laughs> right? So Jesus is okay with man-made feasts as long as they, as long as they are, you know, they, they, they're sort of pointing towards God and the people. So like, like for me, just put it out there, like Christmas, for example. You know, everyone's like, you should be celebrating Christmas, it's pagan. No, it's not pagan. It came from about 200 AD, and I've not got time to go into that now. But it's an example of a festival that's a man-made festival, but it honours God and it honours Messiah. So why wouldn't you celebrate it? And this is the life that Jesus did. And he did temple. And he did this, you know, obviously, he must have done sacrifice and stuff. And he went up each year with his family and things. Jesus was right there in the thicket. He was in society. He did Jewish church. Forgive the parlance there, but just to bring it down to our level of understanding. He did Jewish church. And he came down to their level. And he was with them as a prophet of God. He, he ministered to them. He related to them. And became the one that it says in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, that he who knew no sin became sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. That when Jesus was hung on that cross... Throughout all of the ages, you can just imagine all this stuff coming down onto him, onto him, the sins of every single person, faster and faster and faster and faster and faster until he became that very sin. Now that's a prophet who identifies with his people. And that's why Jesus did the baptism in the water, because he would become very sin. He is the sin offering. And in the, in the Old Testament, when you, uh, you killed an animal for sin, you laid your hands on the animal, so you identified your sins. And then it was you that slit its throat. I don't know if you know that, but read the text. You killed it, because it died in your place. And Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, sacrificed himself. He said, no one can take my life. I, it's me that lays down my life. No one can take it from me. And so Jesus, who is the high priest, because the high priest tore his robes the night when, when he was put on trial. Do you remember that? When a high priest tears his robes, he invalidates his office until he's declared clean again. So Jesus then became the high priest. Where are you getting it from? It's in Hebrews. Read it. Jesus, even when he walked this earth, was high priest. And so then the high priest on earth tore his robes. Jesus is like, great, I'm now high priest. I'm going to be the offering. I'm going to cut my own throat. And every, all of humanity's sin is going to come upon me. And I am going to set everybody free. Everybody free. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Now there is a prophet who knows how to identify with his people. Amen. So I'm going to do more on this later on today. I'll do part two a bit later on. But I'll just close now in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that you are our high priest. We thank you, Lord God, that you are the apostle, our high priest. You are the pastor. You are the evangelist, Lord. You are the prophet. And you are the apostle and all of those fivefold ministries. And we thank you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you help us really understand and mature and grow in the things of the prophetic, especially in these days ahead, Lord God, where it's one of the gifts that I know that we're going to need in the church in these days. And so, God, I pray you bless us. Make us strong in you and make us strong and mature, Lord God, in these giftings so that your church may be built up and it will all be done, not for the glory of man, but for the glory of you, Lord Jesus. And all the saints said, Amen. Amen. Amen.